Shalom. Okay, you remember, you remember. Okay. Now, you may be wondering, why are we standing here in a, in a sukkah in the middle of winter? There's a reason for that. If Tim hadn't dragged his feet through Nehemiah, we would be doing this back in the fall, okay? But not, but not, but not really. I'm thankful for a pastor who takes the time to peel the word of God apart, to get to the heart of how we are to live our lives for God. And I'm thankful for a man like that. And we should applaud him. Well, place yourself back in the time of Nehemiah in Jerusalem. It's the month of Tishri, when the fall feasts are supposed to be observed. They are the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot. Now, the people have just read from the Law of Moses for the first time after returning from the exile. And they most likely have forgotten the law and the, the traditions and the feasts. And after hearing God's word, they wept. But then they were eager to obey the commandments of the Lord. Listen to what part of what they heard from Leviticus 23. I'd like to read that for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation, You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days." You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, the startling fact is revealed that this feast was kept for the first time since the days of Joshua. In other words, after after Joshua, the Feast of Tabernacles was not observed for centuries. And it was not even observed during the righteous reign of King David. Now, some scholars believe that Solomon chose to dedicate the temple during this feast. However, although it was a huge celebration, Solomon did not have his people live in booths at this time. Okay, so there are several names for this feast. The Feast of Booths is also the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was to be observed by the building of booths to commemorate the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Remember when they had to leave Egypt for the exodus. Now, during those 40 years, the Jewish people had to live in booths, emphasizing their temporary abode. In remembrance of those 40 years of uncertainty, each year my people will, were to gather leaves and branches of the three types of um, leaves and branches that we mentioned in those verses, and they had to build and live in these booths for seven days. Now, most importantly, this reminded the Jewish people then and now of God's faithfulness in guiding their path, in quenching their thirst, in satisfying their hunger, and providing shelter for protection. The prophet Isaiah writes, There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. In ancient Israel, booths were very common use throughout the land. 
The Hebrew word sukkah um, meant woven. Temporary shelters were woven together with branches and leaves to protect livestock, to provide resting places for warriors during battle, to shelter watchers in the vineyards, and to protect the people from the incessant heat of the Middle Eastern sun. During harvest time, Israelite fields were uh, dotted with such booths woven hastily in order to protect uh, those that were harvesting. Now, another name for this feast is the Feast of Ingathering because it coincided annually with Israel's harvest festival, the fall harvest of the year. Deuteronomy 16.13 says, You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and from your wine press. This is the last of the three Israelite feasts connected with the agricultural year and was, from ancient times, one of the most important feasts in Israel. This brings us to the third name of the feast. Now, it is also known as the Feast of the Lord, or simply the Feast. Now, the Hebrew word hog comes from the root word meaning to dance or to be joyous, and applies exclusively to the three pilgrim feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, that each male was to appear in Jerusalem before the Lord. Now, imagine you are in a group of Jewish pilgrims traveling to you are in a group traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, along with thousands and thousands of others passing through all the way. Now, you would be singing uh, Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through 134, to worship God as you ascended up to Jerusalem. Now, picture thousands upon thousands of people attending this festival with thankful hearts, because as, a, as an agricultural society, they were thankful that their storehouses were full. Now, in Scripture, the term the feast refers to the Feast of Booth, because this is the one that had a lot of unusual pomp and ceremony connected with it, and it was very important in Israel's economy. This is the final feast of the annual cycle and was a high point in the life of the Israelites. There were parades, music, huge festivals that filled the night with dancing and celebration because God had provided for them, and they were with him all the time. The Feast of Ingathering also came to be known as the season of our joy. The rabbis gave it this name, Zeman Simchatenu, which means the season of our joy because to be a time of great rejoicing. In contrast to the somber tone of the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement in which my people have to repent and, and fast and pray, this was to be a time of joy. Deuteronomy 16, 14 through 15 says, You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful." The crops were gathered into the storehouses. The long, hard days of labor were finished. The harvest was over, and God gave these seven days to set aside worldly cares and to thank and praise him who provides. Notice that the Jewish people were to invite the Levites, the foreigners, the poor, the fatherless, the servants, and the widow into their booths to stay and partake of God's provision. 
It was also considered a big mitzvah, or which means a good deed. An important part of this feast was worshiping God through sacrifices. Never before had so many sacrifices been required on, in Israel on any one day. In Numbers chapter 29, it spells out the vast numbers of sacrifices required for each day of the seven days. There were 70 bulls, 14 rams, and 98 lambs. Altogether, a total of 182 sacrifices are offered. Plus, there were portions of ephah, 336 portions of, it's called tenths of ephah, which is just portions of flour, for the meal offering. Now, according to Judaism, these 70 bulls represent the 70 Gentile nations of Genesis chapter 10, who are the descendants of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God's concern for the Gentiles is most evident in the Talmudic writings regarding this feast. Now, the Talmud is um, writings of the rabbis. It's kind of a commentary on the scriptures, and Jewish people consider it um, equal to scripture as far as inspiration goes. They feel that it's just as important as just as... They believe that it's inspired just like scripture is, which we know is not true. But there are some very beautiful writings of the rabbis. And in Jewish sources, um, Israel's role in world redemption is a major theme of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Talmud says, at the Festival of Tabernacles, we offer up 70 bullocks as an atonement for the 70 nations. And we pray that rain will come down on them. Israel's mission was to proclaim to the world that the God of Israel is the only true God and there is no other Savior but he. Now, Israel was also supposed to be a nation of intercessors for the sins of the Gentiles. And though Israel did not fulfill her mission, God completed the task by himself by sending his son Jesus. Now, God is not finished with Israel, and the destiny of the world is linked with the destiny of Israel. The importance that God places on the Feast of Booths for all people cannot be minimized. In the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom after the Great Tribulation, not only Jewish people, but all nations will be required to keep the feast. So you have to take a picture of this, because this is what you're going to have to build in the Messianic Kingdom, okay? <laughs> Zechariah 14, 16 through 17 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Now, just as the Feast of Tabernacles was a time of rejoicing following the afflictions of the Day of Atonement, even so, the Messianic Kingdom will be a time of great rejoicing following the afflictions of the Great Tribulation. So, how do Jewish people celebrate Sukkot today? As the sun sets on the day, at the end of the day of, of atonement, each Jewish family is supposed to drive the first nail into the Sukkot booth in celebration of this joyous festival. Now, many people build them in their gardens, backyards, or even on their roofs of apartment buildings. Often, however, since many people cannot build these, and, and the construction and the decoration of the sukkah becomes a community project at the synagogues, temples, and Jewish centers. The apartment complex that I live in, in in Brooklyn is about 80% Jewish. And during the, this feast, one of the families actually built a, a sukkah in the courtyard and invited people to come into that to, 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 to spend time. 
As I drove back and forth to the Messianic Center that we're working on, I could see through the, through the backyards, on rooftops, and in, in front yards of people's homes, these Sukkot, uh, these Sukkot booths be, being built. Now, wherever it is located, the sukkah is to be made of flimsy material and to give the feeling of temporary abode. It must give a sense <clears throat> of the insecurity the Jewish people felt during the wandering, during the wilderness wanderings. Now, the roof is to be made of branches and leaves, and the openings in it must be open so that the moon and stars will shine through, just as their ancestors saw it. Now, since we also celebrate the feast at this, the harvest at this time, it is the sukkah that is made with festive things like candy, fruit, vegetables, and nuts. Now, the rabbis say that it's a duty to make a beautiful sukkah in God's honor. Now, I must provide room for a table or, or chairs or benches since we eat in the sukkah during, this, during this, this feast. And we also invite others in for refreshments because we must share our bounty with those that are less fortunate. Now, it's a week-long holiday, and during this period, there's great rejoicing. It's a time when the Jewish people sing and dance and especially do dances in a circle. The Feast of Booths is to be celebrated with the four species, I don't know if all of you can probably can't see the picture up there, but there's an Orthodox Jewish boy holding the four species of what we're going to be sharing about. These four species are the three types of branches and a fruit. One feature of this feast is called the lulav. Now, the lulav ties together three types of branches, palm branches, myrtle branches, and willow branches. You may have noticed when we read the passage in Nehemiah, they also... Um, brought uh, olive branches as well. I'm not sure why, but maybe they didn't have all three of these kind. Now, another feature of this holiday is the citron or etrog, which is a citrus fruit. It's usually a, a bigger size, um, and it, it's a bright color, and they have special, even have special gold dishes just made for this citron or etrog. And it symbolizes the fruit of the promised land. It is considered to be the most important one of the symbols because it has both fragrance and taste. And the Jewish people, um, the rabbis say that this represents, um, fragrance represents good deeds and learning, the taste represents learning. And it is significant because it, they equate that with a Jewish person that has fragrance, which is good deeds, and learning, or taste, which is learning. The other branches, the palm branch has fruit but no fragrance, the myrtle has fragrance but no fruit, and the willow has no fragrance or fruit. So the etrog has both fruit and fragrance, which is good deeds and learning, represents that. There are many other interpretations uh, for these items. Um, our, my people have an expression, wherever there are two Jews gathered together, there are three opinions. And so there's many, many interpretations for uh, for this um, the simple agricultural interpretation is that there are these are symbolic of all vegetation which God has blessed and for which we give thanks. They are also considered symbols of parts of the human being. For example, the etrog refers to the heart, the place of understanding and wisdom. The palm branch refers to the spine or uprightness. The myrtle leaves are the eyes, enlightenment, and the willow leaf is the mouth the service of the lips, which is prayer. It is the dedication of the entire person to the service of God. 
Now, each morning of the seven feasts, seven days of the feast, a special ceremony is performed called the waving of the lulav, in which the lulav is held in the right hand and the etrog in the left hand. And as the Hallel is recited, which is Psalms 113 through 118, these are carried in each hand and waved, first to the east, then the south, then the west, and the north, and then above and below. The scroll is taken out of the ark at the end of the service, and the congregation walks in procession around the bima, which is the platform, holding the four species as a reminder of the processions around the altar in temple times. Now, on the seventh day of the feast, it's called Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great Hoshana or Hosanna. And on this day, the procession circles around the bima seven times in commemoration of the defeat of the walls of Jericho. Remember, the um, Israelites marched around Jericho seven times and God knocked down the walls. So it is a commemoration of that. A lot of, th- a lot of remembering takes place in this holiday, remembering God's graciousness and goodness to my people. Now the Hallel is recited, which is Psalm 113 to 118, and, and especially the people will recite back to the <clears throat> rabbi Psalm 118.25, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, on this day, especially in Israel, there are prayers, prayers for a good harvest for the year to come, and prayer for rain, because the raining season in Israel is just about to begin. And this prayer of Psalm 118.25 is recited during the procession seven times around the bima, and the willows are bound and beaten. Now come back with us during this Feast of Tabernacles at the time of Jesus. The city of Jerusalem was flooded with Jewish pilgrims from all over the world to participate in this feast. And you have to imagine there were booths scattered all over the hills and valleys and on the rooftops of all the cities in the crowded areas of Jerusalem. Imagine sacrificial animals being herded into Jerusalem for that large number of sacrifices necessary for each day of the feast. Now, more animals were sacrificed during the week of Sukkot than on any, during any of the other Jewish holidays. Now, at the time of Jesus, there were two key ceremonies that took place during the Feast of Booths. It was the water-drawing ceremony and the illumination of the temple. Now, the Mishnah, now, the Mishnah is also a commentary of, of, from the rabbis, describes the ceremony of the water-drawing ceremony, which was not part of the biblical celebration but it had become tradition about a hundred years before the time of Jesus. And because the Israelites depended upon God for rain, they developed a ceremony in which they were called, they called upon their creator to provide heavenly rains or heavenly water for the crops. In Deuteronomy 11, God promised to send rain if the Israelites were obedient, but he also would withhold the rain if they were not obedient to his word. Now, the water-drawing ceremony occurred each day of the feast and began at dawn at the temple. The worshipers are wearing festive garments, and each one of them is carrying in their right hand the lulav, consisting of the palm, the myrtle, and the willow. And in their left hand, they have the etrog. And these, these three branches are all, t- are all tied together. The worshipers were divided into three groups. Some would remain in the temple to attend the preparation for the morning sacrifice. Another group would travel down the hill, down the Kidron Valley. Remember, the temple is up on a mount, 
So they would travel down the Kidron Valley to a town called Motsa, and where they would gather up willow trees, because this is where the willow trees grew by the water. They would get the, the willow branches and bring them back up to the temple, timing their arrival to coincide with the third group, which was the water processional, which would arrive ahead, just ahead of them. The branches were leaned against the altar to form a canopy. Now, the third group of fellow worshipers, along with the flutists and the assigned Levitical priest, would begin the, this whole entourage would be marching up the temple. I'm sorry, they marched from the temple mount down to the Kidron Valley to the Pool of Siloam, which was about half a mile. Some of you might be able to see the trek that they took. I don't know if you can see that. But they would march down the Kidron Valley to the Pool of Siloam, which was about a half a mile. And this pool was built by King Hezekiah using two teams of men to bore out a tunnel through 1,700 feet of solid rock. This was quite an engineering feat of their day. The two teams began at opposite ends, and incredibly, by shouting through the rock, they met in the middle and were only inches off course. This allowed water to flow through the spring into the Pool of Siloam, allowing a water source within the walled city of Jerusalem. Now, when we lived in Israel, I, went, I was able to go through the Hezekiah's Tunnel, Sometimes uh, during the year, depending on what time of year you go, the water can be up to your waist. Luckily, when I went, the water was only up to my knee. But it is so dark in there that you have to put your hand on the shoulder of the person in front of you and just walk through together. Um, and Hopefully, you remember to bring a flashlight. But it was an amazing um, tunnel to go through. It's still there. It's still um, available to go through. Now, upon arrival to the Pool of the Siloam, the priest would fill a special golden pitcher with water. Then they marched, the whole entourage marched back up to the temple mount through the water gate, which obtained its name from this ceremony, and they marched up to the altar amidst the music of the flutes and the chants of the Levitical choir. Now as they ascended the 15 steps into into the temple compound, they sang the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalms 120 through 134. And as the priests arrived, the haunting blasts of the shofar were sounded. The priest entered the temple area and went directly to the southern side of the great altar. There he placed two magnificent silver basins on the southwest corner of the altar. Now these two bowls were slightly different from each other. The wide mouth bowl on the eastern side was used to receive the wine of the drink offering, and the western basin was somewhat narrower, and it was and it was and the water that was poured into it was from the pool of Siloam. Now this was followed by great rejoicing, and the flutists then joined by a choir of Israelites chanted the words of the Hallel, which is Psalms one thirteen through one eighteen. The worshiper would respondingly say Psalm eight one eighteen twenty five, which is. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now imagine thousands and thousands of worshipers singing and shouting these words while shaking the lulav, the palm, the myrtle, and the willow branch, and the shofars blew louder and louder. And the musicians and the choirs raised their voices to God. And finally, after the special offering of the day, the priest would march around the altar. 
Now the ceremony was to thank God for his bounty and to ask him to have rain for the crops in the coming year. And because water was so scarce in the Middle East, the people were very much aware of their dependence upon God for the rains that were so vital for the preservation of life. But the pouring out of the water had a much deeper importance than its agricultural implications. The water represented the Holy Spirit, and the water drawing pointed to that day when the Holy Spirit, when God would rain the Holy Spirit upon the Israelites. The prophets predicted the day when would come when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the whole nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27 says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture from Zechariah speaks of the day when the whole nation of Israel will come to faith in a day. Um, We look forward to that time with such anticipation, although we still need to share with our Jewish friends and neighbors about our Messiah even now. But Zechariah 12.10 and 13.1, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now the prayer of every worshiper at this time was, May God send his Spirit upon us now. In the Talmud, we read, Why is the name of it called the drawing out of the water? Now, this is what the rabbis wrote. Because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, according to what is said, with joy shall you draw out of the wells of salvation, from Isaiah 12.2. Isaiah 44.3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. These rabbis believed joy to signal the presence of God's Spirit, and joy is one of the main themes of this Feast of Booths. The Mishnah says that he who had not seen the rejoicing at the pouring out of the water had not seen rejoicing in all of his life. Now the Gospels record that Jesus not only celebrated the feast, but he took traditional elements of the celebration and applied them to his own life and to his mission. We find this particularly true in John 7 and John 8, where Jesus uses the two traditional symbols from the Feast of Tabernacles, water and light, to help the people understand who he is and what he has to offer. The drama of the wooding ceremony took on a new dimension of meaning when Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the seventh day of the feast, Roshana Rabbah, which literally means the great Hosanna, and was called the great day of the feast. On each of the six previous days, the priests circled the altar only once in procession, with singing from the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. 
but especially Psalm 118.25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. But on the seventh day, they circled the altar seven times as the cry, Hoshana, save us, was repeated seven times. And this was once again to remind the people about God's work at the walls of Jericho. Now, normally, only the priests were allowed in this section of the temple. But on the last day, throngs of worshipers could gather into every part of the temple that was accessible to them to participate in this feast. The worship of the people would have risen to its height on Roshan Rabbah. Now, can you imagine Jesus being in that crowd at the pouring out of water? And this is what John 7, 37, 39 says. Now, you have to imagine, I want to set up for you, Jesus is in a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. All the people know what the pouring out of the water is about. And you have these sacrificial animals in there, and you can smell those sacrificial animals burning on the altar. And this is what Jesus cries out on that last day of that great feast. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Can you imagine Jesus shouting that at that feast, what people were thinking in their minds? Now, this is what he said about the spirit whom they, whom they believed in were to receive, for, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the presence of thousands of worshipers, Jesus proclaimed the message that would quench the thirst of the most thirsty soul. Jesus invited the whole congregation of Israel to come and drink of the living water. Not only did the prophets predict the day would come when the Holy Spirit would be poured on the whole nation of Israel, but they also predicted the day would come when the Spirit would be poured out upon all people. Joel 2.28, in that chapter we read, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Peter quoted from this passage in the book of Acts, chapter 2. He quoted from this passage in Joel in reference to the outpouring of the Spirit on that day of Pentecost when Peter preached a sermon from Joel 2 and 3,000 people believed in him, in, in Jesus. The pouring out of the water of Sukkot symbolizes the indwelling Holy Spirit which Jewish and Gentile believers now experience. And it also symbolizes the future pouring out of the Spirit on the nation of Israel. Now, the second ceremony during the time of Jesus was the illumination of the temple. Now, there were four gigantic golden candelabra lampstands similar to this, not exactly like this, but similar to this. And each of these four lampstands were 75 feet tall. And they were set up on a hill in the temple compound, uh, towards sundown, and each of them were lit during the feast. Now, each lampstand had four branches, and at the top of every branch, there was a huge, large bowl. Now, four young men bearing ten gallons of pitchers of oil would climb those ladders to the top to fill the four golden bowls on each of the lampstands. The wicks that for these colossal lamps were made from the old, worn-out linen robes of the, high, of, of the priests. And when the oil in these bowls was ignited... Picture 16 beautiful blazes leaping toward the skies from these golden lampstands. Remember that the temple was on a hill above the rest of the city, so the glorious light was a sight for all to see. 
In addition to the light, the Levitical musicians played their harps, lyres, cymbals, and shofars to make a joyful music to the Lord. The light emanating from these from the four lampstands was so brilliant that the rabbis said there was not a house in Jerusalem that, that was not lit by the light coming from these huge lampstands. The light reminded the people of God's Shekinah glory that once filled the temple. Do you remember devout old Simeon's words when Mary and Joseph came to the temple to present baby Jesus? In Luke chapter 2, verse 32, Simeon quoted from Isaiah 49.6, referring to Jesus, the Messiah, as a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. The brilliance of the holy city at the ceremony of the illumination of the temple paled in the presence of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, God's glory was once again present in the temple. In response to that second key ceremony, Jesus declared to the crowd of thousands of worshipers, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He was more glorious than the temple, for he embodied the Shekinah glory, and in him dwelt the fullness of God. Can you imagine the thoughts running through the minds, not only of the religious leaders, but also of the many Jewish pilgrims that were present? Could this be the Messiah? And this is still the question my people are asking today. They're still waiting for their Messiah. In Jesus, we see the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. For John wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tabernacled among us. The Greek word dwelt implies a temporary dwelling, a sukkah. As the temple was a temporary dwelling for the Shekinah glory, so Jesus tabernacling among us manifested the glory of God. He is the source of light and life to all who will believe in him. The Feast of Tabernacles speaks of the final rest as well as the final harvest. John wrote in Revelation 21, 3 and 6, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Like those exiles so long ago returning to Israel to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, do you feel like you have been in exile away from God's dwelling place? As those exiles lost God's word from their lives, have you neglected God's word from your life? Imagine the joy of finding it again and allowing it to bring you back into fellowship with him. Come out of exile. Return to the Holy Land. Build your sukkah booth and experience God's faithfulness in guiding your path, quenching your thirst, satisfying your physical and spiritual hunger, and providing shelter and protection. The fall feasts are unique in that they form a natural progression. 
The Feast of Trumpets teaches repentance. The Day of Atonement teaches redemption through Messiah's blood. And the Feast of Tabernacles teaches rejoicing in God's forgiveness. Now it's necessary to pass through repentance and redemption in order to experience his joy. And no wonder the Feast of the Booths is called the season of our rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for the opportunities that you give to us to celebrate feasts that you have put in in your word. Thank you that we can celebrate them with rejoicing. And Lord, teach us to be a rejoicing people, to not be complainers or anything like that, but to rejoice in who you are, to understand the cost for you it was to send your son to die on that cross so that we could have forgiveness of, of sin. Thank you so much that you're the God who loves us so much and cares so much about us that you would do that for us. Lord, help us to rest in the palm of your hand and to know that no matter what happens in life, you are in control and you are good all the time. We thank you for your sovereignty and we thank you for your love and we'll ask this all in Messiah's name. Amen.